Welcome to the Dover Download Podcast, your weekly look at what's going on in Dover, what's going in in Dover, and all things Dover-related. My name is Chris Parker, and I'm the Deputy City Manager here in Dover, and I'm going to walk you through all of that, plus more. As part of the Dover Download podcast, we have interviewed policymakers from the 70s, 80s, 90s, aughts, and 10s. We've also talked to different employees who have been here for 25, 30, 10, 15, and 5 or less years. Today, we're going to do a little bit of a hybrid. We're going to talk to an employee from the 80s who was involved with the council, so thus involved as a policymaker. I'm going to welcome Bob Steele, former city manager for the city of Dover. Welcome, Bob. Thank you, Chris. Uh, it's nice to be here. Can you tell the listener a little bit about yourself? Okay, I uh, grew up in Portland, Maine. Uh, my uh, father was a police officer his, almost his entire life. And uh, I went away to school at the University of Maine in Arno and uh, started out in, as a liberal arts student and after a couple of years, uh, I really didn't know what I was going to do with that and found out about the public management program. And that program, uh, it's a shame, uh, has disappeared now and it's uh, strictly uh, public administration. But uh, the public management program had a key role for the state of Maine because it was started by Dr. Edward F. Dow, and at about the time after World War II, veterans coming back were older people, and those students wanted to get into an engineering-type situation, so which fit in and which drew me to the program because it was approximately one-third civil engineering, one-third business administration and law, and uh, a little bit of government thrown in. <laughs> and that is what was key to the development of the selectman town manager form uh, of government in Maine, where I think there are over 400 little municipalities <laughs> in Maine that have town managers, uh, if I remember correctly. <laughs> Your guess is probably better than mine. Uh, so uh, anyway, I got off on a track about that, but my dad was not real happy with uh, my choice to become a city manager or a town manager, uh, which was the case of, of most uh, police officers and fire personnel. Uh, they were a key person. However, I, I, I uh, did quite well with the program, not to say that I was the greatest student, but uh, I really enjoyed it, and I actually was offered a job and accepted it before I got my degree in Rockport. And that was my first town, and, and that's history now. And I was recruited after I'd been in Rockport only a couple of years to go to Scarborough. And I hadn't thought about it, but I knew there was a vacancy there. But there was a group there that had heard about me and the town, and they sent a team of uh, selectmen at the time from Scarborough to Rockport. 
interviewed fishermen on the waterfront and wanted to know, how's this young fellow do with the people in the community? And another long story short, I went to Scarborough and I never wanted to leave there. I thought uh, it was next to heaven. Hmm. Uh, I was there 13 years and uh, it, it was all I could uh, ever want. Uh, I had a lot of hunting, a lot of fishing, uh, the marshlands, and having grown up in Portland, I knew a little bit about Scarborough, but didn't realize what a large community it was. And the interesting part is that the population when I went there was about 10,000, but in the summertime, it goes to about 65 or 70,000 because of Higgins Beach, Prout Snack, the famous home of Winslow Homer, and uh, Pine Point, which are summer, basically summer communities. And I thought they would stay forever until I got a call one day from a good friend of mine, John Andrews. I knew uh, well, and, and John asked me, would I please come for an interview in Dover? He says, We're, the Municipal Association here in New Hampshire has been hired, so to speak, by the... Uh, association uh, by the city council to be the, be the search and, and try to find a locate a new manager. He said, I can't get anybody to go to Dover. He said, I haven't got any qualified candidates. Would you please just come? Don't accept the job. You don't have to. Just show up. So I did show up, and you all know what happened. I, uh, they made me an offer I thought I couldn't refuse, and and came to Dover. I've, I've never regretted that I came here. Uh, it's a great community to live. Uh, and raise your children. My boys weren't real happy to, to move to Cow Hampshire, as they call it. Uh, Coming uh, from Maine, that's a real flight. <laughs> but uh, it was a whole new experience for all of us. When I did come to Dover, I... Uh, had known Jared Clark, who was the predecessor to my accepting the job, and and, and he and Jared Clark was the one that followed uh, Don Chick. And, but I knew Jared well because he was a town manager in Cumberland, not far from Scarborough, so I was acquainted with him. So you you come to Dover. This is the late seventies. I came in seventy eight. Okay. What was the community like at that time? Uh, the is uh, an urban renewal going on. Urban renewal was trying to finish up. Okay, and uh, the main street, Central Avenue, was a gravel road. Ooh, the sidewalks were ripped up. There, uh, nothing was paved. It was wide open. The uh, apartment buildings opposite the old firehouse uh, did not exist. Uh, they were being built by the, uh, the Dover Housing Authority. This is in the Orchard we, Street area. And the Housing Authority at that time, the director uh, with that position is, uh, was Heine Merrill. Okay. And I had known a little bit about Heine Merrill because uh, he had came from the Portland area. But anyway, it, the uh, Urban Renewal Project did quite well, but that leads into what were the major issues when I accepted the job. Yeah. 
uh, I guess the first uh, one was that that was at the time that the city owned Wentworth Douglas Hospital. And uh, no one had told me in the interview process or anything to do with the city that until after I was here in the job, they said, oh, by the way, uh, you have to appoint all the trustees to the hospital and you have to serve as a trustee of the hospital. I said, okay. Uh, and that's another whole story. <laughs> so was the hospital a department of the city or was it an, an adjacent, uh, kind of like the housing authority where there's an, a relationship, but it's not directly tied to the budget? Well, it was directly related to the city because their debt and everything was oh. of the city. Okay. That was the, the key that's issue. A big, that's a big connection. Yes. <laughs> but... I don't, I don't want to get into too much of the details of that. It ended up that the doctors did get a hold of me and sort of explained to me how everything worked and that they would really like to become a community uh, nonprofit hospital like others in, in the state and ended up going to the legislature and it happened. The other issues were engineering uh, issues, I guess. The landfill at that time, we called it a landfill, it was really a dump, uh, was uh, on Toland Road. And the EPA eventually adopted that as a Superfund site. And my job was to find a new location or come up with some options uh, because there were other options available at the time. One of the things they did was I coupled that with the pick up, the curbside pickup of trash, and that was handled by the Public Works Department. But they had uh, some quite a bit of experience, I guess, in workers' comp claims and things and injuries and uh, that type of issue that uh, made our insurance costs very high. So we... we contracted out for the pickup of curbside. And then uh, right behind that was the state said we had to close the landfill and we had to look for a place to take it. And as as it turns out, uh, Turnkey Landfill was just being started by the Banfield brothers who owned Lakes Region Disposal. And it all ties up. The Lakes Region Disposal was the pickup of the trash, and then Turkey was a, a separate a little business venture, but run by the three brothers. Those properties were have since been taken over by waste management. Uh, the next thing was water supply, mm-hmm. and never have enough water supply. The uh, the water, I I was uh, so pleased when I, I met with the engineers from. Uh, this camp dresser and uh, engineering company in Boston, worldwide company, uh, to find out that Dover was the uh, largest community, uh, I think it was at, on the East Coast at that time, that had its entire water supply from gravel-packed wells. Okay. A unique, which and I thought was great. We don't have to worry about the surface water. Or, uh, yeah. And uh, there's a much different level of 
review and testing and protocols. Right. Not to mention security. But in it's sort of tied in with my job because one of my summer jobs, uh, I won't tell you about all the different ones that I've had, but one summer I worked for the Portland Water District. And Portland Water District covers 13 communities in the greater Portland area all the way up to Sebago Lake, which was the open supply of water, a great supply of water for Portland, Scarborough, and, and, and what have you. That, that was an exciting thing and a pleasure for me to, to work on. Today, I know I'm jumping ahead fast, but I, I'm disappointed in when the city started taking material away from that gravel-packed well issue and selling off the gravel around the wells. And now the water supply, we are sort of taking a little bit uh, out of the uh the Madbury Reservoir, yeah. It's true, it comes through the gravel right. to th- that well. And Willand Pond, it's, it's a crazy thing, but Dover has the rights to the water in Willand Pond, even though a large portion of that is in Summersworth. Yeah. So th- there were a number of issues along the way that uh, enough to hold my interest and, and then some. And uh, it was, uh, I was really happy to go to work. Uh, I could say almost every day of my my time here. What was the council like at that time? Were they fractious? Were they committed? What were the uh, relationships like? Well, I, I hesitate to, to talk too much about it, but, but most of these people that worked with me have passed away. Uh, there are that many left. Mm-hmm. Uh, we can go back to when I, the time when I accepted the job. Uh, I had friends uh, in Maine and uh, some in New Hampshire that warned me about Dover and said it's an extremely political community. They have been through the council manager form of government. They went back to the mayor. Uh, city council former government, then they went back to the council manager former government, and they were hard on managers. I don't know much about the only the only manager that I know perhaps more about is is Don Chick. Yeah, but uh, the, the older one and and Woody Brackett. It's unfortunate that he was. Even though he was the first, and he didn't stay long because Woody Brackett was a civil engineer. Uh-huh. And that's how he got the job. It's because the whole the whole thing about council manager former government was uh, that started in, I think, 1914 or 1915 uh, in Staunton, Virginia, where they had some serious floods and the, the city council hired a, a manager to come in who was a civil engineer, and that's how it started got cracking around the country. But, well, there's so many infrastructure or public works-related elements to the day-to-day job. I, I got to think that with your background, with that background, it helps because you're able to at least speak the language, if not have the full-depth knowledge of what that position entails. Uh, that that was uh, my pitch when I was tra- trying to get the university to stay with the program the way it was, because I always thought the engineering 
piece of that, even though you went an engineer, you knew the parts of the wastewater treatment plant and the water treatment plant and right. how the, how it gets there and how to build roads mm-hmm. and how important how the three most important things about building a road were drainage, drainage, and drainage. <laughs> Uh, those those are, are simple little things, but you are right that I think it's a, an important part of a manager's job. But getting back to the city council, I had some of those people that were extremely aware of the mayor former government. And I wouldn't say they organized to, to go back to the mayor former government, but they... Uh, they Tried to create roadblocks at times. Uh, it's a nice way of saying it. Yep. Uh, but I, I won out in the end. I mean, the, the uh, one aspect of it was uh, I had to kind of educate uh, city council w- without letting them know I was doing that. And that's a difficult job. So you bring them along as opposed uh, to I, tell them what to do. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I had to make them understand that they were the boss. Yeah. Uh, the city council is elected by citizens of the community and taxpayers. And the manager reports to the city council. He is the hired hand. Okay. He gets the job done after they create the policy. Now, that's not to say, though, that the manager shouldn't be uh, bringing up new concepts uh, and explaining to them how it works. And uh, it's not the city manager's form of government. It's a council's form of government. It finally worked, I, I think, uh, looking back. I was lucky I had some great people on the city council. One was Don Mitchell, who was an, a young attorney, and uh, was well aware of the council manager, former government, how it functioned. It was great to have somebody like that. Geraldine Sylvester had been active over the years in, in local government. She was the, the mayor at one point, correct? Yes. Jack Buckley was a great mayor. I always went along with it. It's the chairman of the city council. Yeah. Uh, the mayor sort of made them feel good and uh, thought they were filling an important position, but actually they had no more authority than any other city councilor. They're, they're the, the, the classical representation of the council and the community by being the spokesperson, by, by providing that leadership. Right. But the, uh, the council, there they were people like uh, Helene Donnelly, Peter Murphy. Henry Smith was a guy that was uh, very helpful. He was a business person. Okay. So the, the mid-'80s, you decide that it's time to, to leave? or the, How did that come about? How did it come to pass that you, you recognized that while well, you wanted to continue to live in Dover, you didn't want to be the CEO? Well, I was thinking about trying to get into... Uh, private sector versus the public sector. I uh, was losing my patience uh, a little bit, and uh, I think it probably showed at times. But uh, I thought 
I, I didn't know where to begin or where to start. So I, uh, I looked at different types of engineering firms. I didn't, I, did, I didn't want to do a lot of traveling. I wouldn't, wouldn't do this. And it was sort of a, a quirky thing that I used to have dinner once a year, or lunch, I should say, with the Banfield brothers. They were uh, Pat, Cookie, and Bill. Cook, Cookie was Robert. All right. <laughs> and Bill. And uh, I think I think we were at the 103 up in Rochester. I was a blue. Pat Banfield said to me, how would you like to run a garbage company? And I, I thought, what? He says, yeah, yeah, you know, pick up the trash, you know, you could, uh, yeah. And I said, gee, I never thought about that. I thought, I don't have anything to offer there. Just like running a public works department, he says, you're just dealing with one department and one one aspect of it. One mission. Uh, I'll, I'll think about it. And it, a couple of months went by, and I, it crossed my mind again, and I thought, gee, here I am, 45 years old, and uh, somebody wants me in the private sector. And I thought about it and thought about it, and then I, I had heard so much about trash companies being uh, part of organized crime, right. uh, what have you. And of course, my father, being a, a police chief in Portland, uh, uh, was not. Uh, I, I didn't even dare go go near that. And then, uh, but anyway, they finally made me an offer again and said, "Gee, you have to you have to take a couple of tests." I said, "Okay." They, so I went to Manpower uh, Rinaldi's, yeah, and. Uh, uh, I cleared it with them, with the the people at Waste Management, and I went down to take the test in the morning. And they said, uh, you know, you're going to be here all day. And I said, I said they only told me I had to take it a test. So I, I said, okay. I'm. Uh, I called the office and told my secretary that I'm taking the day off, and I stayed there and went through all. Of it. It's called the Doctor Weird test. In uh, out of Chicago, and uh, it, was, it was a psychological aptitude, uh, personalities. Yeah. Uh, well, I don't know all sorts of things to see if you fit the mold. Because waste management, I think, sort of like uh, most of the rubbish companies, they get their management people from within. Somebody starts on the back of a truck. As a lumper, uh, pick, uh, picking up uh, the trash, you graduate. You become a driver. Then you become a roof supervisor, and, and you got all these stages you go through. So maybe after about uh, ten years, uh, you might get into the beginning of the management. But right. but they were. I was the first person that they had hired, and, and they had some. 40,000 employees all over the world. They were in 28 countries at one time. Okay. And so I was a test case. And uh, then they told me there was another test case in Michigan. Well, the guy in Michigan didn't make it. I did make it. (laughs) And uh, 
it turned out it, it, it was a very great opportunity for me. I uh, liked the company. Uh, Pat Danfield took me around up there as part of the the process and uh, told me they were going to build a uh, wastewater treatment plant just like it. They had just uh, like a small primary plant for solid waste management where they collected all the leachate off the liner system, treated it, and put it back in the river, cleaner than what was in the river. Okay. So that excited me because I wasn't leaving my wastewater treatment plants and yeah. the communities that where I had worked. And then the next thing was, he said, we're going to capture the gas yeah. in the landfill, and we're going to run our trucks on it. Now, mind you, this was 30 years ago, right? Yeah. And I said to myself, oh, these guys are kooky. <laughs> something, something's not right, right here. Lo and behold, it's here today. They're yeah. generating electricity. They're doing the power, a bulk of the power at UNH. But anyway, they hired me. They, uh, I guess I, I had a, a good rapport with all the people in Oak Brook, Illinois. I don't know how it happened, but that's when that was the headquarters of waste management. Okay. And Phil Rudy was the president at the time, and Bill Holligan, and they, they were all Irishmen, really. And uh, it, it was just a, a great, great company to work for. Phil Rudy himself used to come once a year to this landfill at Turnkey because I saw I made it a showcase for them. Good. And they let me do what I wanted to do. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but we used to mow the sides of the road on Rochester Neck Road. I had flowers uh, planted yeah. uh, in different areas. We we built a uh, hiking trail right. down to the waterfall on the Isaac Glass River. It, we, we, we tried to make it you change the perception of what the asset. Yeah. Change the perception of what a landfill is supposed right. to be, right? And uh, they they were great to me. And uh, I I looked back and I, I I really liked my time there. So you were you were the manager in Dover for a while, and you went on to waste management. Looking back, and I think I've mentioned this to you before, you and I met when, when I started going to St. Thomas. You and, you, and, you and Robbie, your wife, were there. And I remember you were, in, uh, you were doing culinary school. Yeah. And uh, uh, I, I've said this to you. I, I know your son, Doug, and I've said this to him. You, you, to me, are one of the true Renaissance people. Your mind is so broad, and you, you capture so many different interests, ideas, and expertise. And... I thank you for sharing what little you've shared today and, and with me in the past and very much appreciate the community commitment you've had because I know even when you left the city manager role, you still contributed to this community and still helped enrich the value of the community, uh, whether it's giving advice on the side or whether it's speaking at a podium. You've got a, a, a knowledge base that it's been very beneficial to Dover for you to share, and I appreciate you coming in today and spending the time with the listener. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. I, I've left out a lot, a lot of things. Yeah, I'm, 
Uh, Intentionally and unintentionally, I'm sure. No, but uh, just that, you know, I I was going through some stuff just the other day in the basement with with Doug. It's envelopes and things, and I found pictures that were taken, I think, for the Portland Press Herald. They're black and white, but of my little decoy-making shop that I had in the basement at Scarborough because I used to carve a lot of duck. And... uh, Having talked about my flying experience, I thought I was... That's one of the things that enticed me a little bit about Dover. I was close to Skyhaven Airport. And I I earned my uh, pilot's license at Portland Airport uh, when I was, while I was town manager in Scarborough. And I tied that into my industrial development works that I did for the town. And it turned out... I didn't have any time to mess around the sky even airport when I got here. But uh, anyway, there's uh, all those things that uh, I, I mentioned the culinary thing. Uh, I always wanted to cook, and as, as it turns out, I I surely would not uh, want to have to earn my living cooking. It's hard, hard work. I remember you telling me how hard it is to learn how to chop properly, properly like the cutting yep. of uh, things. Um, but uh, yeah, the, the culinary experience was was really great, and uh, I thoroughly enjoyed working at the New England Center. You had to serve a uh, four hundred hour internship someplace, pick your restaurant, and whatever. I was lucky enough to get into the old New England Center. And what an experience to work with some some of the people there and meet people along the way. It's been a wonderful life. <laughs> well, I appreciate you sharing with us. I hope you have a great rest of the day. Thank you. With almost 400 years of history, Dover's got a lot to tell. Up next, Mike Gillis is going to walk us through what happened this week. On Christmas Eve in Dover, 100 years ago, a heartwarming spectacle unfolded as more than 700 children gathered in the grandeur of the former Dover City Hall and Opera House, their faces alight with the glow of anticipation and joy. This was no ordinary celebration. It was a testament to the community's spirit where the city's benevolent citizens, led by Mayor Fred Beckwith, conjured a yuletide miracle for those less fortunate. The Opera House, usually a bastion of dramatic performances and silent films, transformed into a cavern of wonders. A Christmas tree, majestic and tall, stood as a beacon of the festive season. Adorned with a constellation of electric lights that twinkled like stars in a clear winter sky, it captivated every child as they filed into the hall, their eyes reflecting the vibrant colors. The air buzzed with excitement as the event began. Suddenly, with a jolly ho-ho-ho that resonated through the rafters, Mayor Beckwith, embodying the very essence of St. Nicholas, made his grand entrance. Dressed in the iconic red and white, he bore a sack filled with gifts, each a parcel of hope and excitement for the eager children. His appearance was greeted with a chorus of cheers and applause, each clap a note in the symphony of merriment that filled the room. The event was a profound display of community and generosity. It was not just about the gifts or the bright lights. It was a shared moment of collective joy, a reminder that the warmth of community could light up the darkest of winters. As the night drew to a close, the children departed with more than just presents. They carried with them memories of a Christmas filled with wonder and the knowledge that their community was united in the spirit of giving. And thus, on Christmas Eve in Dover, a century passed, 
the true essence of the holiday was beautifully and joyously realized. Thanks for listening to the Dover Download this week. If you like what you heard, subscribe through your favorite podcast aggregator. And if you have something you want to hear a topic on, let us know. Finally, this is just one of the many ways we share information about the city of Dover. You can subscribe to the Dover Downloads email newsletter every week or other newsletters that we have by going to the City of Dover homepage, www.dover.nh.gov. Have a great week.